Hey everybody, welcome to the Regeneration Podcast, and uh, it feels like it's been a really long time since I've said that. Does it feel like it's been a long time to you, Isaac? It has been a long time. Very. <laughs> what, what is, what's the Regeneration Podcast? What is it? That's how what I feel. Doing? That's how I feel. Wait, what day is it? What year is it? No, man. I seriously, most mornings, I don't know what day of the week it is. Yeah. It's weird. Everything's been disrupted. We're actually, uh, we're recording this right now. I'm sitting in my house isaac is sitting in his house like 20 miles away and uh we're recording this over over zoom um and the day i actually seriously do have to look at my phone to find out the day it's thursday may 7th as we're recording (laughs) this which what that means is uh you and i isaac both of us um we're just about we're almost two months into sheltering in place here in uh, the bay area of northern california and before we get into today's episode and the conversation, which I think you're really going to enjoy, I just thought it'd be good to, for Isaac and I to update you guys, just so you know we didn't fall off the face of the earth, because, um, you know, here we are. That's <laughs> so weird, man. Yeah. We, we've never done this over video, you and I, before. No, no, it's always in person. Yeah, but this is the reality. And, uh, you know, the truth is, here's the deal, like, we... Uh, well, obviously, we have a deep love for uh, the mission of the Regeneration Project, and the podcast is a big part of what Isaac and I do. But uh, most of you know this; some of you don't. But like, this is not our day job, you know. Isaac and I both uh, spend most of our waking hours serving and helping to lead in um, the local church to different local churches. And so, Isaac, I just thought, you know, before we get into today's episode, I, I might ask you. One, how are you doing personally? How's your family doing? You, uh, you, it's been crazy time for you. You've been like, you moved into a new house in the middle of all this. It's just been crazy. Yeah. So how, how are you and your family doing first and foremost? And then how are things going with just leading and serving in the church? Yeah, things are about as, as well as they can be personally think things are good. I mean, I have, I have three young kids, so, um, it's, it's like a dream come true for me. <laughs> It's like I get to spend, you know, that goes by so quick when they're little and I'm just getting to spend um, all this at home time with them. And sure, there's there's still tons of meetings and tons of work, but you're after every one you get to go out of, you know, I have a small office space and go play with the kids for 10 minutes, 15 minutes. So yeah. so that's really good personally on the churches and things are going about as well as they could in a global pandemic. Um, been really proud of my church and many churches who have just stepped up to the plate. Um, it's, it's a, it's a bizarre time, certainly as everyone says, a once in a hundred years type of thing. And, um, everyone has an opinion. Everyone has, um, a different article they post a different video and everyone's opinionated on it. So to navigate the waters with gentleness, with discernment, with wisdom, with meekness, everything the scriptures tell us is just, it can be a difficult, difficult task. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you about, you know, this is really interesting. The last episode we had on the podcast was just you and I talking about um, some ideas I propose in a book called Analog Church, which is like a strange thing, you know, because the book is all about why it's important that we continue gathering in person and in embodied ways. It's about more than that, but that's one of the big, big things, ideas in the book. And then like immediately that same day, you and I, before recording, we were talking about what we were going to do with our churches as things were getting shut down. And, uh, and now it's been like eight Sundays, I think for both of us, where 
we haven't physically seen anybody in our church. How's that been for you guys and for your church and for your community? You you lead a large church, so uh, you've got people all over the place, you know. Um, yeah, how's that been for? What are you hearing from your people? What what's uh, the the good and the bad of it? Yeah, not meeting uh, is is lame for sure. <laughs> not meeting. Um, I mean, you wrote obviously analog church and and both of us have felt passionate about you know balancing technology with embodiment mm-hmm. um and so we've already been discussing these issues for a long time yeah. and even before this broke out we had concerns about people um, attending just a purely online church there's no embodiment there's no no taking of communion with the saints type of thing so we already had a lot of concerns and this is only uh, for me, at least, accelerated those concerns as as to demonstrate like what we're doing is is not human. Um, and what I mean by that is like we we we're designed as creatures with senses. We we yeah. touch, we taste, we see, and so much of that has been eliminated. I mean, even even when people are wearing masks, there's a part of their humanity you don't see Yeah, like to not see someone smile is not to see part of the humanity. So what I've been telling our church is like, we're still doing church. Okay. In a mm-hmm. sense, we're still doing church. Mm-hmm. We're meeting, we're, we're, we're online uh, and this is all good. And we're still doing church, but in another sense, we're not doing church. Mm-hmm. So I want to do a both and type of thing. And I know that seems a little contradictory, but for me, it truly is that it's like, we're still able to do church in one sense, yeah. but in another sense, church is also the gathering of the neither Jew nor Gentile, male, female, slave, free people of God who come together and they could hear their voices in a room. They could yeah. hear each other singing in a room. We take of the same elements together. So all of those things um, are problematic for me. And so um, church still goes on in a sense, but in another sense, it's not church the way God, God designed it. Um, yeah. I want to ask you a little bit about, you know, the face masks. I haven't thought about that a whole lot, you know, because it's such a pragmatic and now it's a, uh, county mandated reality. Like we just have to wear them when we go out. But, uh, when I, you know, as you, as you mentioned it, how sort of, um, you know, how lacking it is that when I can't, you know, I can't see people's faces and all that kind of stuff. It, it just makes me think like you have a lot of thoughts about where this could take us in the future. And that might turn into another episode at some point here on the podcast, uh, or maybe a written piece or something. We've, we've talked about all of that, but without giving it all away, um, Talk a little bit about that, you know, and the face mask thing is what got me thinking about it, because one of my questions that I've had is when this is over, like at some point, the government, the county is going to be like, you don't have to wear face masks when you go out anymore, you know, but in parts of Asia, they've been wearing face masks and we, we made fun of them here, you know, when we see like, you know, my mom wearing a face, like literally my mom, you know, older Asian woman driving around wearing face masks, people would be like, oh, there's prototypical Asian woman. There's all sorts of, uh, you know, layers to that too, that, that, um, we, we don't have time to get into, but 
it fe- I could be wrong, but it feels a little bit like, man, this might become a little bit more normative, you know, as we go back, like even people who like made fun of the older Asian woman who yeah. wore face masks, like you might just keep wearing a face mask because you're nervous about whatever. And like you said, oh man, that could get a little weird, you know, it could change the dynamics of just even how human we feel in our interactions with people just out on the street. And I don't know, that's kind of a weird yeah. question, but talk about that I- a little bit. Well, I mean, obviously there's, there's a rhyme and a reason and we have to be safe and wise. Um, but down the road, there's got to be a balance at what you're, what, what are you exchanging um, safety for, for, to what degree? Like, obviously we're in a global pandemic, so everyone kind of gets it. But um, when you don't see someone's eyes, when you don't see their smile, their mouth, you are not seeing a part of their humanity. And that costs you something and it costs them something. Hmm. Every human being has a deep desire to know and to be known. Um, and so the distance, the not, being, the, the not hugging, um, these, are, these are really problematic. I mean, there's some cultures who, um, I mean, this is the opposite of Amer- American culture. We have um, like something called private space and you don't get in my like, five feet away from me. Now you're in my private space to get away. But there's some cultures who, when you talk to someone, if you can't feel um, the wind of their breath because they're close to you, then it's like, well, I thought we were friends. I thought, I thought we're family. Aren't aren't we close? And I'm a, I'm an American through and through. So I like the personal space when someone's (laughs) like close to me on a bus or something, I I don't like it. But all of that to say, there is something deeply dehumanizing about not embracing, about not seeing each other, our, our eyes, our smiles. And so that can only last for so long. Mm. And um, that's what we're doing. We're, we're saying, hey, we're going to push pause. Right. Uh, we're going to try and do what we can to, to save lives. But that, that can't go, go on forever because people, and this is my opinion, but I'd put money on it. Trust me, people will start to go to to go crazy over they'll lose it they're anxious there'll be more anxiety there'll be more depression all yeah. of that stuff because the the humanity element that keeps us sane you know will, will start to be stripped so hopefully um hopefully we're we're farther along in this sheltered in place than than not yeah yeah i mean those of you who are listening you know i know people listen from all over the country and and parts of the world really so uh, the story unfolding where you live may look uh, different than the way it's unfolding here, you know, depending on where you are. But, um, yeah, my, our hope really is, uh, is that, that, uh, in the midst of the uncertainty, um, you know, the, this podcast was really started because we wanted to instill confidence back into the hearts and minds of people who, um, had questions and doubts about the God of the Bible that they maybe were, were told about growing up and thought they knew, but now there's all these doubts and questions. I mean, so in a time of uncertainty like this, that's, you know, that continues to be our mission and our hope that you uh, find some, find some hope and, and, and a deep confidence in, in a God who is uh, still leading and guiding us through what seems like just an, an, you know, never ending <laughs> sort of ordeal that we're in. Uh, but it is, it is going to end, but here's the thing, man, like, when this ends, it'll be something else, you know, it'll always be something. So, um, yeah. 
Yeah, Isaac and I are uh, we're we're kicking around all sorts of ideas. Like like Isaac said, um, you know, the, we're doing well. Both of us are doing well, but we're also leading in local churches. So that's one of the main reasons why we just haven't been as consistent. But we've got some ideas about uh, some different uh, different ways that we're gonna put some content out there. So uh, hopefully, we'll be in touch with you guys all very soon. And in the meantime. Um, I want to share this uh, this next episode with you. I uh, I had a chance to talk to um, Jared C. Wilson, who is a professor at Spurgeon College and a pretty prolific writer and speaker. Um, and he just recently wrote a book called "The Gospel According to Satan," which I mean, Dying. <laughs> subtitles Dying. eight lies that God. Uh, eight lies about God that sound like truth. And so we get into it with them, like lies, like God just wants you to be happy. Uh, you need to live your own truth. Just let go and let God really fascinating stuff. So, um, Jared's a brilliant guy, a brilliant writer and, uh, and just a really genuine, passionate follower of Jesus. So it's a lot of fun talking to him. So here is, uh, my conversation with Jared C. Wilson. Enjoy. Hey, Jared, thanks so much for uh, being on the Regeneration Podcast today. Brother, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Um, you know, there's so much to talk about with uh, this book. I just, I, I, I found it prof- profoundly helpful in both, you know, it's theologically rich and robust, but also pragmatically just the way it addresses um, so many lies that, that I've found myself believing, in, you know, over the course of time, uh, different points in my life. And I know so many people that I know have, have bought into. So certainly we're going to get into that. But first, you know, a lot of people know you um, sort of peripherally from uh, different projects you're working on. You're you're quite prolific on Twitter and all of that. So, uh, <laughs> you know, tell us how you got here. You do so much. You're a professor, certainly a prolific author and speaker and church leader. You do so much, but um, give us the backstory. How, how does one arrive at the Jared Wilson level of, uh, you know, well, life and well, ministry? Uh, <laughs> Assuming anybody would want to arrive, <laughs> I don't even know if I've arrived. Whatever that, whatever that means, you know, I've been in ministry a long time. I started, um, you know, my first role in in local church ministry was the summer I graduated high school, and and there was no really dissuading. But I've always wanted to write as well, even even before I sensed a call to ministry. I wanted to be a storyteller. I wanted to be a novelist, and so I kind of took both of those uh, ambitions or both of those pursuits uh, pretty seriously. And we got a little book deal with Kriegel with my first book. And um, yeah, from then it's just kind of snowballed. I just have kept at it. So, so we want to want to ask about uh, your your latest. This um, again, really, really theologically rich and uh, eye opening. I think in so many ways, book um, the Gospel According to Satan, which right there, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's worth the price of the book just for the title. Um, and the subtitle, Eight Lies About God That Sound Like the Truth. And um, I wanted to ask you first, you know, before we get into some of the details of the book, what compelled you at this moment in time? Because you you unpack eight really fascinating and, again, truly eye-opening. Uh, for many, it's going to be paradigm-shifting 
untruths that actually sound very much like the truth. So what what were you seeing? <laughs> what are you seeing in culture and in the church and particularly amongst those who are followers of Jesus that compelled you to sort of compile some of these ideas together and uh, and put the book together? It was really a convergence of a couple of things. One was uh, circumstantially, I was in a in a bookstore like a Barnes and Noble or something like that, uh, mainstream bookstore, looking through the religion section. Um, and you know, as you know, it's it can be kind of a, a mixed bag of things um, in there. And I came across a book by William Paul Young, who's the the author of The Shack, most known for writing The Shack, which is a work of fiction. And and I didn't know that he wrote nonfiction. It was a nonfiction book, and I picked it up off the shelf. And it was called Lies We Believe About God or or something like that. Lies People Believe About God. And I just began to flip through it. And there were things in the book that, um, you know, in the table of contents that most, I think, Christians would acknowledge are, are lies. Things like, you know, God is a magician or something like that. The chapters that really kind of troubled me, um, some somewhat in the title, but but really just kind of in the meat of them. Um, and it was some of the, the uh, approach that he was taking to to the atonement. Mm-hmm. Uh, things about forgiveness, needing to be forgiven of sins, um, whether you know God, uh, uh, Jesus received uh, punishment for sins at the cross, and that kind of dovetail with a conversation I'd had um, with a few folks, just you know, in my own ministry. But but one you know Bible college student once upon a time after I was uh, speaking somewhere, where it seemed to be almost a, a, a full frontal assault on the gospel, mm-hmm. and. Um, which isn't the same thing. Like it's one thing to say, penal substitutionary atonement, for instance, isn't the only facet of the atonement. That's absolutely true. It's not the only facet of the atonement. The the New Testament speaks of the atoning work of of Christ in in uh, multifaceted ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so to say it's 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 one note. Um, you know, some of us would say the primary note, but to just say it's one note among several, or one uh, approach. That's all, all well and good, but to say it's it's not in the scriptures at all, and in fact is a lie, that was really troubling to me, and it occurred to me as I read the book, um, you know, there in the bookstore, you know, if the devil wrote a book, he might put something like this, <laughs> like mm. this in it, and and that wasn't the light bulb went off for me. I was like, okay, well, what are some of the things? Um, and so I kind of converged that with, um, in Colossians chapter two, where Paul says. Um, you know, he warns them not to be misled by plausible arguments, hmm. he says. And I find that really interesting that he, that he says plausible arguments that he's warning them about. So he knows that, um, you know, most Christians, if not all Christians, they see the, um, you know, blatant lies pretty, pretty quickly. Not which isn't to say we don't sometimes choose those things. But, you know, we're not as susceptible to blatant heresy or blatant lies as we are to things that sound like they could be true or have a ring of truth to them, which is obviously in keeping with with the presentation of, of the, uh, the, you know, the enemy as an angel of light, that he comes as an angel of light. So that just got me thinking about what are some of the cultural kind of slogans or, you know, sentimental um, ideas, uh, either from the culture or in the church or both, that um, we might be tempted to believe. And and in, in in most respects, because they sound like they could be true, they have a ring of plausibility to them, mm-hmm. or there's a way you could take it in which it could be true. There's a couple examples I think in the book where the 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 lie itself or the the phraseology isn't so much troubling as what people typically mean by it. I think which is more troubling. Yeah, yeah. You know, along those lines, you you really somehow some way you know you whittled it down to eight. Um, 
of the, it seems to me, eight of the most critical sort of uh, lies of Satan that sound very much like the truth. So um, for those who haven't read the book, one, I would obviously highly recommend it. But just to give you a taste before we get into some of the details, these are these are some of those eight lies um, that God just wants you to be happy, that you only live once, uh, that you need to live your truth, that your feelings are reality, uh, that your life is what you make it that you need to let go and let God, uh, that the cross is not about wrath, and that God helps those who help themselves. The reason I, I don't I, I, I don't think I've ever done that on this uh, podcast before where I read the chapter <laughs> titles, but the reason I wanted to do that is because this book, I mean, immediately when you flip to the table of contents, you quickly realize uh, that this is going to shift your paradigm. So I want to ask you about several of these. I wish we could deep dive into all of them, but just for time's sake, there's so me- all of them are so crucially important, and the, and the way you write is so incredibly helpful. Um, let's start at the top. You know, God just wants you to be happy. Uh, you make a really compelling distinction in this chapter between happiness and holiness. Um, and, you know, the, the interesting thing is, okay, I'll just, you know, I'll be the voice of emerging generations in particular. Uh, <laughs> I've been told my entire life that the pursuit of happiness, I saw the Will Smith movie. It was beautiful. The pursuit of happiness. That's what yeah. this is all about. And you're telling me that God doesn't want me to be happy. What What are you talking about there, Jared? Yeah, I'll even go further back than that. Just the, you know, the founding, you know, documents of, of, of yes. our nation that, yep. you know, we are given these inalienable rights in order to pursue mm-hmm. uh, life, liberty, and, and happiness. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. So the problem, as I, you know, as I, you know, mentioned before the problem isn't so much with the phraseology, but what is meant by it. I think in that chapter title, God just wants me to be happy. M- my concern and what I try to tease out in the chapter is not that um, there's anything wrong with happiness, <laughs> or even to pit happiness and holiness against each other. But the key word in the title is is the word "just." I think God mm-hmm. just wants you to be happy. Mm-hmm. And what I'm trying to address there is is sort of the excuses that we sometimes make um, w- when we're not pursuing um, lives that that are honoring to God, uh, when we're kind of pursuing our own way, self-interest, and we use it to say, "Well, God knows my heart, you know, and He just wants me to be happy, you know, kind of thing." And and it sounds silly on the face of it for a lot of us, but we sometimes live that way, whether we say those things or not. And so what I try to do in the in that chapter is, is not say that God is disinterested in happiness. Um, you know, God is not ambivalent about your happiness. In fact, I talk about, um, you know, biblical joy as well. Um, I don't think that there's quite a, uh, a separation between happiness and joy, um, but I do talk about that a, a little bit, how happiness um, sometimes is how we feel about circumstances, and joy is the kind of happiness that has a, has a root to it. Mm. That, that kind of defies even our circumstances. So you can be sad and at the same time joyful, right? So the scriptures talk about sorrowful yet always rejoicing. So that means that I'm not happy in, in that moment, but there's a, there's a kind of happiness, there's a kind of joy that I can grab hold of. And so I talk about that, just kind of the rootedness of joy, n- no matter what's happening to us circumstantially. Uh, because normal people are sad about sad things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not about, you know, um, you know, putting on a happy face or faking, you know, something. Um, in, uh, uh, in that regard, but really that God's concern is, is not that simply that we're happy, but that we're happy in him. Hmm. Um, you know, uh, Christ, 
uh, uh, clearly said he came to get, to make our joy full, to make our joy complete. So it would be a lie to say that God isn't concerned about your happiness, at least in that sense. Uh, he's he's definitely concerned in your joy, but he wants you to find it in your pursuit of him. He wants me to find my joy in my honoring of him. And for those who get in on that side of it, who really have the change of heart, um, you discover that it's 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 better than any kind of temporal happiness that you know that you can have, and it's a joy that lasts forever. So that's what I try to do in that chapter is is basically to say God's not unconcerned with your happiness, but He wants you to be happy in Him, and that is a uh, an all conquering kind of happiness. Yeah, that's great. You know that little you said it as a quick aside there, but you know God wants us to be happy in Him. It seems like for so many followers of Jesus today. Uh, the sense, you know, is that uh, I want to be happy with him. Uh, and I don't mean with, <laughs> like, in terms of closeness. I mean, like, you know, I'm happy with God right now, or, you know, I'm really unhappy with God right now. And what that infers is that God is, uh, you know, your cosmic vending machine. <laughs> and when he gives right, you what exactly. you want, you're happy with him. Yeah. And when he doesn't give you what you want, you're unhappy with him. Uh, but what you said is so key there, right? That we are happy not with him or, or you know, by him. We're happy in him, finding our yeah. our lives deeply embedded in, in what he's up to. Yeah, I love that. Uh, you know, I want to ask you this one, because this one, you know, for, for me, as I sort of serve and lead in a local church, we, we have a lot of college students and young people, emerging generations in our church. Uh, it's a younger church. I think... Uh, these next two, actually, the next two I want to ask you about are like the two critical lies that they just full force believe. And, yeah. and the two are you need to live your truth and your feelings are reality. So talk to me about both of those. <laughs> Let's start with yeah. your truth. You know, that sounds, first of all, this is one of the, to me, what strikes me is um, it feels like, uh, you know, in particular, really, really far left progressive strains of, of you know, and I'll use air quotes here, Christianity have sort of tried to co-opt beautiful poetic metaphor and language, you know, and um, yeah. this is one of the areas in which I, I see that, you know, you need to live your truth. It just sounds so right, you know. Um, yeah. Talk talk to us about that. Why, why is what's so wrong about that? My truth is my truth, and yours <laughs> is yours, right? Well, like some of the lies, um, it, it, it probably depends on what, what is meant by it. Sometimes I, I think it's an unthinking phrase, and we, we've heard it a lot in um, kind of the, the, the wake of the Me Too movement. And in, in, in many of those cases, um, I understand what is meant and, and, and have no concern about it. When, when someone says, I have to speak my truth, um, many, in, in those circumstances, many times what they mean is, uh, I've lived under this cloak of of shame or or secrecy about about being a victim, mm. and I'm I'm going to tell the truth now. I'm going to yeah. I'm going to speak that out so that there can be justice or there can be. Um, and so when it's meant that way, I still think it's a uh, you know it's a poor it's poor wording or it's a poor phrase choice. But I understand what is meant. You know, it's not it's not a huge deal. But where it's um, you know where it originates, I think at least in in terms of the cultural lexicon. Is kind of in the in the Oprahization of language, right? The the uh, living your best or the you know the Osteenization of language, yeah. almost living living your best life now every yeah. day of Friday. I got to live my truth, yeah. and the way a lot of people mean it is is the way that you kind of hinted at in in your introduction is it, uh, essentially truth is defined by my own experience or my own 
desires, perhaps appetite, maybe orientation, if we use that language. Um, so I define what truth is. So something may be true for you, or it may be wrong for you to do, if we're going to you know, put it kind of under the subset of, uh, of how we're defining truth. But that doesn't mean that it's wrong for me to do. And the problem with, all, with that is, is it, it assumes that there isn't an objective standard of truth, mm. that truth is relative be- between us. And that sounds appealing for a while because we each get to do whatever we want to do. But you realize that everyone living their own truth or living according to their own personal standards um, ends up in a kind of moral chaos in which what happens when our truths are different and my truth means I'm, I'm violating you in some way or, or harming you in some way. That may be wrong to you, but it doesn't mean it's, it's wrong to me. Um, and also, just according to you know, the Lord's standards, there are things that even if they're not harming you, I may be harming myself according to what you know, God's good design yeah. um, you know, without even knowing it or without even thinking that I am. And so I think we have a biblical example of this right in the book of Judges where every man did what was right in his own eyes. And, and the result is not just moral chaos, but violence and um, sexual and otherwise. Mm. Um, it, it, it was a, um, a bloodthirsty mess when everyone just becomes the, the arbiter of their own personal morality. And that's kind of what I'm getting at with, with um, living your truth. Your feelings are reality, the next lie. Mm-hmm. That's more about um, those who are suffering or anxious or even depressed um, you know, obviously the phrases themselves kind of sound like each other, but in that one, I'm trying to, to issue a word of comfort mm. because what, what the enemy loves to do in, in moments of fear, and maybe this is a, a good word for, um, the season we're in right now where yeah. there's just so much uncertainty, um, and, and so much instability, both health wise and economically and everything else. Um, the enemy loves to come along to someone who, for instance, struggles with depression and say things to them like, um, uh, either uh, this means the Lord doesn't love you, or or God's punishing you for something, um, or this is how it's always going to be. Mm. There is no light at the end of the tunnel. You're always going to feel like this. It's always going to be terrible. Um, you know, you suck, and everything you know around you sucks. And um, just those words of condemnation. Um, and so your feelings are reality. That lie for me is is. Uh, a means of trying to wake people up to see, first of all, your feelings are important. Mm. The whole point of that chapter is not that we should ignore our feelings or uh, you know, pretend like they're not even important. We have too much in the scriptures that speak to the, you know, the full gamut of human experience, yeah. the Psalms, for instance, um, you know, to be honest about how we feel. But the, our feelings aren't the full story. That, you know, you know, that's kind of the point. The feel, our feelings are important, and they tell us something important, but they don't tell us everything. Mm. And so sometimes in the, in the midst of, of worry or depression, despair, it's almost like a, a funhouse mirror effect. Mm. Thing, things are upside down. And yeah. so we, we exaggerate little things. You know, little things seem like tragedies to us. Um, or, or we minimize big things, things that we ought to be more concerned about. Where it's, so it becomes somewhat inverted. And the enemy, I think, messes with our minds mm. in those moments. And so in that chapter, I'm just trying to speak a word of comfort to say, as, as hurt as you may be, um, this doesn't mean the Lord is punishing you. He punished Christ on your behalf. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is, is long past uh, um, you know, taken care of. Mm-hmm. So God's not mad at you. I think some Christians would be surprised just to hear the word. Like, yep. 
you, you don't wake up and God's thinking, all right, let's see what you got today. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, he's not, he's not waiting for you to impress him. And, uh, he's certainly not waiting to strike you down. Yeah. Um, and so I'm just trying to encourage, encourage believers in that chapter, really, that the Lord's pleasure is over them because of Jesus and, and never to be revoked. Yeah, that's a great word. The Lord's pleasure is over you because of Jesus. And yeah. again, if we had more time, we could dig in, you know, with the cross not being about wrath and all of those sorts of things. How do you reconcile that? Um, before before we start winding down, I do have to ask you about the one uh, phrase that I heard the most growing up, you know, okay. and had to reckon with and deal with. And uh, it's the idea you need to let go and let God. I mean, literally verbatim, I heard that so often. <laughs> growing up, you know? Yeah. Uh, and then I'd find myself, you know, in my teenage years and college years, like, I did let go, and I just let God, and he let me down. <laughs> it didn't go that well, you know, just letting go. So it was kind of weird. Um, talk to us about that. I mean, I it's a, it's a common, it's such yes. a common phrase, let go and let God. And it's always, almost always so well-intended, Uh, you know, the intention behind it, when folks say that to one another at church happens all the time, particularly in times of uh, struggle and pain and anxiety and and fear and all those things, like, you know, what's wrong with that phrase? Uh, Deconstruct that a little bit. Well, again, it's one of those, depending on what is meant. So when someone simply means uh, you should trust God more or something like that, um, or or they're, you know, cautioning you against a sinful kind of worry, you know, you know, put your faith in God, uh, then there's really um, nothing wrong with it. I think we have better biblical phrases for it, mm-hmm. right? Put your hope in God, put your faith in God, yeah. um, you know, look to Christ. He is the author and perfecter of your faith. I think we have better phrases for it, but I understand what's meant when that is what is meant. It's, it's, it's when it is used circumstantially, and you kind of alluded to this, that I find it really troubling. So when someone is really struggling with something, um, perhaps they're seeking the will of God in, in a certain area of their life, and, and it could be something big or little, but usually it's something pretty big, and they sense, um, you know, they're looking for some kind of revelation or just whatever the next step is, and they're kind of, you know, fearful, or they're under an immense suffering. It's not anything that they can choose or not choose. Um, you know, they're just suffering, and, and, and they wish they could, you know, kind of, you know, wish it away, um, and they've been praying for it to be removed, and it won't. And someone comes along and says, you just need to let go and let God. Um, I, I find that borderline harmful mm-hmm. um, for a few reasons. Number one, it's so it's it's so vague. What is it that I'm letting go of? Mm. H- how exactly do I let go? What, what does that look like to let go? Well, you pray more. Well, that doesn't sound like I'm letting go. That sounds like I'm actually holding on more. Yeah, you know? yeah. H- what is it? You know, it, it has its roots, as I explore in the chapter, with kind of the higher life kind of thinking, sort of Keswick theology, which has really been reformed a lot over the last, um, you know, couple of decades. So it's not what it used to be, uh, you know, the Keswick kind of thinking, where there's almost like, there's like a Christianity 2.0, there's like a a higher level that people who strike this right note of passivity somehow get to enter into. They have found the right level of of letting go somehow. But it's just so vague. I don't know if this illustration will work for your audience. And I wouldn't recommend the movie to everybody. Uh, and if you do watch it, try to get it on TV so all the content's uh, <laughs> uh, uh, censored out. But Forgetting Sarah, uh, Sarah Marshall, did you ever mm-hmm. see that movie, Forgetting mm-hmm. Sarah Marshall? Mm-hmm. There's a scene where the lead character is taking a surfing lesson. Paul Rudd is the surfing instructor. Mm-hmm. And he's telling it. And it's it's a you know 
hilarious scene. You can probably see just the scene on YouTube where um, he's telling him that uh, uh, to do less. That's his instruction. Yeah. He's on the surfing board and he's supposed to pop up. And and he says, no, 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 you got to do less than that. And so he he does it more slowly. He's like, no, you you, you got to pop up, <laughs> but you got to do less. And then eventually he doesn't do anything because the guy he can't figure out what do I mean do less. <laughs> and so he just lays there. The guy goes, well, you got to do more than that. <laughs> and it's so funny. But I'm thinking that's let go and let God. How do yeah. I know uh. that I'm letting go? Do less, not do less. The, you know, there's such a a vagueness to it. I think is unhelpful. The other piece though is just. The you know what it says about the sovereignty of God, just the idea that you let God. So that I think there's some troubling language there. The idea that you activate God in some way, mm-hmm. that He's kind of a cosmic butler waiting for you to push the right buttons, as you said earlier, like the vending machine, or to to you know to reach a certain level before now He's going to do something. It's almost a prosperity gospel light um, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, you know, you and I don't let God do anything, mm, right? He, right. you know, he's God, he does as he pleases. Um, and so I think we need to be cautious about that kind of language as well. And th- this is the one, I mean, it's probably the most popular cliche in, in, in the church. And it's the one, whenever, uh, the publisher runs Facebook ads for the book, um, the, and, and this phrase is listed as a lie. It's the one that makes people the most angry in my <laughs> comments. They're like, I say yeah. it all the time. It's not a lie. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So but we to, have to walk lightly, I guess. You know? Yeah. Well, to your point about not just this lie, but but several of the lies, it really is. Some of it has to do with what is intended, what is meant. You know, that's so right. There's that anger. It's like, no, that's not what I mean. But to back to your point, though, it is so crucial for us um, because you know you we we get into uh, you know. Um, what you would call Christianese, right? <laughs> like there's right. just Christianese. It happens. It's a linguistic reality. It does. It's not just with how we speak as followers of Jesus. It happens all the time, just in life. We right. say things enough. I mean, the word love is a primary example. It's yeah. just like, you know, we say it so much. Like, oh man, I love that. Well, like you really, this is a right. a taco. <laughs> like you love. Right. And I get what you mean. I get the intention, right? I understand you don't mean you would lay down your life for this fish taco, Uh, but in in with Christianese, we don't have as robust of an understanding, which is why some of the language does matter. Just unpacking it, right? You know, well, again, even for someone, yeah, for someone who's suffering, just think of the impact. If you're really struggling with something and you've been praying you know, for deliverance or, or, or healing, you're dealing with some kind of sickness and someone says you need to, you know, just let go and let God, mm. you know, just think of the, the harmful effect that could have, or the discourage, you know, just discouragement right. that can mean, because it's nonsensical, let go of what? Mm. And, and then if I do that properly, what happens? Suddenly I'm healed or, right. you know, what does it mean? So I just think there's a, a vagueness that can be really unhelpful in, in certain circumstances. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you have this um, fantastic line in the book, I love it, where you say, sin is fundamentally stupid. <laughs> Just pull no punches. <laughs> oh, it has the logic of immediacy to it, the appealing apparent sensibility of pleasure, of fulfillment, beauty, and enlightenment, but it always bids us make the most of time by wasting it. 
And I thought, man, I, I want to read that quote directly from the book because uh, you mentioned it briefly earlier. You know, we're recording this toward the end of April 2020, and uh, we are in in uh, we're sheltering in place for most of us across the country, although some of those are, are being slowly lifted in in certain parts of the world. Um, and time has become a whole different thing now, you know, it's just fluid and our, our, our days and our rhythms and our schedules have been so disrupted and everybody, I mean, this is like not hyperbole right now to say everybody is finding themselves not less busy necessarily, but certainly hunkered down in one place, you know, at home, whatever home is for yeah. you for long extended periods of time. And what that does is it creates uh, an almost a strange elasticity of time, a fluidity of time. And so I wanted to ask you this because it really resonates with me, this idea that sin, it bids us to make most of the time we have by wasting it on stuff that seems good and beautiful and fulfilling when in reality we're wasting the time we've been given because it's actually none of those things. Um, maybe talk a little bit about that uh, in general, um, about the way sin works and, and more specifically how followers of Jesus, people who are listening to this right now, who are, you know, if we're, if you're listening, when we're re releasing this, you're probably sheltering in place and you have, you know, maybe a lot of time on your hands, but certainly you're just in one place for extended periods of time. Talk to us about how we can leverage this time and pay attention and live with awareness right now um, so that we don't l allow sin to do this, to bid us to come and waste this time that we have. Yeah. So, I mean, the essence of sin is not so much, um, the, the, you know, behavioral things, but the misuse of, of behavioral things, right? So, um, adultery is a sin, but the right use of sex is not. And so my point in talking about, you know, wasting time doesn't have anything to do with whether, you know, um, you're working or not working or resting or not resting or, or, you know, eating, you know, cake or, <laughs> or any of those things. It's, it's being mindless of, of God in the midst of those things. Are, are you, Pursuing work or rest, um, are you eating healthy or unhealthy, um, all in the pursuit of some kind of uh, soothing against the ache inside or outside? Mm. And and right now, you know, so to waste time is essentially to live your life in such a way that um, that you pay zero attention to God, that you that you're not seeking to bring glory to Christ. And so for some in this time, um, it could be that not you know, working very much is a means of, of medicating against the, the anxiety or the fear or, um, you know, you know, that sort of thing for others working over time. Like, you know, every pastor I know is working longer hours than they did before the shutdown. And that's with not having, you know, weekend services and, and all that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, but for some people staying, staying busy, staying productive, that's a means of medicating because if they're still, they have to deal with themselves <laughs> and they have to, you know, think about thoughts that they would rather, you know, be distracted from. Yeah. And so it's not necessarily about the behavior, but about what we're using to replace being satisfied in God. Mm. So it's a waste of time um, to be, you know, constantly productive, mindless of God. Mm. Um, at the same time, it's maybe not a waste of time to be restful, to work less, to be able to dwell more. Uh, with God in His Word and 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 in prayer, so the point of wasting time is not necessarily about what you're doing or not doing. It's it's about whether you're doing all things to the glory of God. And so, 
I think my my encouragement to folks during this time would be to really be, you know, have your ears open to what the Lord wants to say to you. Mm. Um, you know, not get so kind of focused in how you might medicate against the pain, either physical or just emotional, spiritual of this season. Um, because when you do that mindless of God, it, it just leads to idolatry, mm. trying to um, to find some kind of rest or satisfaction in something other than him. And, and I think this is a time where that will be revealed, right? I mean, um, we're kind of losing our crutches. Even, I think, technology, all this stuff, you know, you and I are looking at each other over computer screens. Mm-hmm. And what a blessing it is to be able to stay connected in that way, even for, you know, especially for churches right now. And yet I think um, there's going to be, like, you know, Zoom fatigue if there, <laughs> if there isn't already, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. I think um, even technology, like, we're going to realize now that we're able to just totally lean on technology uh, in ways that we even weren't before, as much as we leaned on it before, it's going to show itself as as not being able to to satisfy that that spiritual hunger, mm. that hunger for connection. Yeah. Um, you know, it's great. You and I can look at each other this way, but it's not the same as if you and I were sitting over, you know, in a coffee shop, you know, looking at each other. Right. And um, I think even live stream church as 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 um, you know, helpful a tool as that can be. It's not the same as, you know, gathering with your brothers and sisters or, or being in a home with them, sharing a meal. Um, and so I just think plowing full speed ahead, unthinkingly, mm. mindless of God is the biggest danger we face right now. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 That's a great word. Super encouraging. Jared, so I, I so appreciate uh, obviously this book, um, I, I can't recommend it enough and, uh, so appreciate all, all of your work that is so incredibly helpful for Christians and for church leaders and for churches at large and, uh, for, the, for the gospel mission in the world. So, um, thank you for all of that. For, for those who are re- interested, not just in this book, but again, you're, you're a prolific writer and uh, speaker and there's a, you put out a lot of content, uh, out there. Um, where, where can people go to find this book and and all of your other work and connect with you yeah so i mean this book's available wherever um, christian books are sold so you can go to amazon or cbd or barnes and noble um, you know all the online shops should have it um, but if you're just looking for kind of the central repository of of all my stuff uh, jaredcwilson.com has links to all you know all my books uh even my speaking calendar such as you know as it is these days yeah <laughs> um <laughs> You know, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of white space clear up over the next few months, but uh, my speaking calendar is there, links to my blog. Um, you know, I blog at a couple places every week as well. So that's kind of the one-stop shop is jaredcwilson.com. Perfect. So we'll link all of that in the show notes. So uh, be sure to check out um, this book, The Gospel According to Satan, uh, as well as Jared's uh, many, many other other works. Jared, thank you again. Seriously, we, uh, we're big fans of yours over here at the Regeneration Podcast and uh, really glad we were able to get some time with you. Thank you, Jay. I really appreciate it.